Good morning, everyone. Good morning. And it is time to go ahead and get started with our class this morning. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for another opportunity to come together and study. We ask that your spirit, your angels will join us today, enlightening our minds that we can see you more clearly. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Okay, today we are doing uh, lesson number eight in our quarterly discipleship. And the lesson title this week is Experiencing Discipleship. Somebody read for us the the memory verse for, for today. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Mark 8.34 What do you think it means to deny oneself and take up the cross? What does that mean? To die to self and give the Lord whatever he needs. To die to self and give the Lord whatever he needs. Uh, We say those words all the time. I've heard those my whole life. Mm -hmm. How do we make that practical in our life? Unselfishness. Unselfishness. Sure. Okay. Other thoughts? Keeping in communication with Him constantly. Keeping in communication with Christ constantly. That's good. That's good. In Desire of Ages 4.16, I read this week the following passage. It says, Jesus now explained to His disciples that His own life of self-abnegation was an example of what there should be. Calling about him with the disciples, the people who had been lingering near, he said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The cross was associated with the power of Rome. It was the instrument of the most cruel and humiliating form of death. The lowest criminals were required to bear the cross to the place of execution, and often it was about to be laid upon their shoulders. They would resist with desperate violence until they were overpowered and and the instrument of torture was bound upon them. But Jesus made his followers to take up the cross and bear it after him. To the disciples, his words, though dimly comprehended, pointed to their submission to the most bitter humiliation, submission even into deaths for the sake of Christ. No more complete self-surrender could the Savior's words have pictured. But all this he had accepted for them. Jesus did not count heaven a place to be desired while here on, uh, while we were lost. He left the heavenly courts for a life of reproach and insult, and the death of shame. So as you think about that aspect of of denial of self, it becomes a little more literal that we might be put in positions where we are to deny self in relationships, to deny self in in our rights, our human rights. I mean, Christ's human rights were being violated, weren't they? And and did he stand up to protect his rights? No. Hmm. What do you all think about that? That's just part of being a true Christian. If we daily spend time with Him, we're willing to give our life, no matter what it is. Be willing to give our life, we still spend time with Him. Yes. That's true humility. Do Do we struggle with that as people? Yeah. 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 What are those two root issues at war in our hearts and minds for supremacy? Self love and. Self-sacrificing love and survival of the fittest. That need to protect self, to promote self, advance self. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, it talks about those who are ready to meet Jesus when he comes as, as these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. In other words, they are the ones who take up their cross. They're the ones who are willing to give of themselves, to sacrifice themselves. Why is it necessary that we should choose to do this? I mean, if Christ paid our penalty, if the... The death payment has been made on our behalf. Why should we have to do this? Yes. I think it's in Steps to Christ where it says that the, the greatest joy of the angels is self-sacrifice. So if we're going to heaven, we've got to learn to live that, those principles. That's our greatest joy here, too. Yeah, excellent. If we're going to... Uh, both, yeah, both, the question is why. I mean, you're exactly right. I'm in total agreement with you. But why? Why do we have to come in harmony with those principles if we're going to heaven? Because it heals us. It heals us, yes. But it's also the basic... That's the way... <coughs> yes. That's the only way we'll be able to live there. Excellent. I mean, that, that's the way every, every other being in heaven functions. That's what love is. Exactly. We don't, we don't develop that character here. We'll be miserable there. And that's what I want people to see. This isn't some command that we are told to do, toe the line or else. 
This is the only way life is possible. If we're not in harmony with the law of love, if we haven't been transformed that we will give ourselves for others, if we haven't had that, that, that self-centered uh, aspect rooted out of our hearts, well, life isn't possible. We can't go on living eternally. And so God is saying this, is calling us to this transformation because it's the process of restoring us back into unity so that we will live forever with God. That's the regenerating process. That's exactly right. Oh, I love it. But the text says daily. Deny yourself daily. Yes, yes. Why is it daily? We, we're set, we as humans tend to forget. Yes. And we're, we're pretty weak here on this earth, aren't we? Because we naturally put self first. We're born selfish and then have a relapse. Yeah, let, let's, let's, let's look at it, uh, the metaphor of a garden. If you have a if you have a plot of land that you wanted to start bringing forth good fruit, uh, you're going to have to till up the earth. You're going to have to plant in the good seed. And, and let's say you've done that and you've cared for it and you've fertilized it. And now it's producing a wonderful, bountiful harvest. And you walk away and you leave it for for five years and don't do anything to it. Will you come back and find it in the same good condition it was in? No. Now, now who who was it that put all those weeds in there? Did somebody come in and actually plant seeds of weeds in there? Or did they just come up all by themselves? All by themselves. This is a metaphor for our minds on this earth. You see, if we want that, that Christ-like love, it has to be planted in by a supernatural power. The Holy Spirit is working to plant it in. We have to make the choice to open the heart for that work to be done. And then there's, a, there's that, that fertilizing of the Holy Spirit. And, the, and as we make choices to cooperate, fruits of a good character are born and we come forth uh, living a Christ-like life. But... If we stop daily attending, if we stop daily attending to the garden of the mind, then what happens? Do you have to actively seek out bad things to go into your mind? Or if you just stop dealing with the good, the bad automatically start coming up. You see, because of our nature, our character, or we're hardwired right now on this planet with a certain sense of self-preservation, looking out for what number one. Uh, we don't actually have to try to do that, do we? No, we have to have a regenerating power outside ourselves to fight against that. And that internal temptation will be there from, from the time we are born on earth until Christ comes again and, re- and renews us. We will have that internal temptation to act in self-interest. But that temptation is not the same thing as actual sin, is it? Was Christ tempted to act in self-interest? Tempted to avoid the cross? Tempted to save himself? Remember in Gethsemane, the temptations that came? See, temptation is not sin. And we are, we are actually called to experience a transformation of character such that we will live a life as Christ lived, who experienced temptation, the Bible says, in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. So we can experience those feelings, those, those longings, those temptations to act in self-interest. Yet, through the grace of God, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We can live in love. And this is so important because what do we believe is about to break upon the world here in the near future? Mm. Are there going to be troublesome times? Do you think those troublesome times are going to play on your survival instincts? Do you think you're going to have fears and anxieties well up inside you? Well, how, I, how do think about our, how easy we have it in America right now? I mean, don't we all have it pretty easy? And still, aren't we still struggling with those survival instincts? Think how it's going to be when the times really break loose. I mean, this is what God is bringing us to, those people in Revelation 12 who have been transformed such that they, they don't love their life so much as to shrink from death anymore. Hmm. How was it this circle of love, this principle of love, got broken in our heart in the first place? Believe in a lie. Lies about? God. Can anyone tell me how a lie can break love? How can a lie break love? Mm-hmm. Give me an example. A real life example. Anybody? Well, gossip. I mean, if you gossip about something you don't really know is true and it turns out it isn't, but you present it as if it's true, that can change everybody's thoughts about that person, their relationship to that person. So think about somebody you love in your own life. If somebody comes to you with a lie about them, then you believe the lie. Does something change? You believe your spouse is cheating. You believe your boyfriend or girlfriend is out with somebody else. Even though they're not. Does, does love and trust get broken? 
These are the powers of lies, yes. And so what broke the circle of love and trust was we believe lies about God himself. We don't trust him. And this problem persists today. What Christ is waiting for, preparing him. Remember the, the, the gospel commission? When this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness to all nations, then the end will come. Why? Because the end can't come until we have been won back to such trust that we will be able to stand in the face of this fear, this, this, this emotional uh, onslaught that will come as, as the things break loose around us, in trust. But we can't trust if we hold the lies, can we? You may want to trust. Think about the, the spouse who believes a lie that, they're, they're, that the other spouse is, is having an affair. They really believe they're, they're cheating. You, you want to, ha- to trust the spouse, but you can't as long as you believe they're cheating. And so we may want to trust God. We may know we need to trust God. But we really can't trust him if we believe lies about him, can we? No. And thus this gospel commission taking the truth to set minds free. Thus, as we are one back to trust, we come to that intimate knowledge of God, then we're able to stand, knowing that our life is secure with him, overcoming those types of fears. Somebody read the first paragraph there in, in, in the Sabbath lesson. All through the Gospels, all through the stories of Jesus as recorded there, we can find material that will help us understand what it means to be a disciple. As we read, one point should come through again and again. Discipleship is an experience. To be a true follower of Christ, we need to have an experience with Jesus. We need to know Jesus. We need to have been changed by Jesus. We need to partake of Jesus and what he offers us. And, and what does it mean to know God? Know yep. You know, this is life eternal. That you might know that they might know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, and now sent. Knowing God is life eternal. But but what does that mean? To know His character. To know His character. You to understand Him. How many of us know about uh, George Bush and Bill Clinton? Know about them? All we all want to know. Do, do we know them? No. You see, there's a difference in knowing about the knowing, isn't there? How many of us do you think in Christian circles? have settled for knowing about God without ever getting to actually know Him. Is there a trick there? Does the devil play a trick on us that we spend our lives... Remember what he said to the Pharisees, you, you, you search the, uh, the Word see, thinking in them that you have eternal life. But these are they that teach of me. But you won't come to me. See, they knew all about the Word, didn't they? All about God. But they never actually came to know Him. Interesting. And so when he came and stood among them, they hated him and they killed him. Do you think we're in danger of that today? Spending our time and energy studying the Word, studying the Word, faithfully study, 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 to know about, 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 but never getting to know. What could help us with that? Relationship. Personal. And how do we develop that? Any practical steps we can take to actually develop that relationship with God? Prayer and study of the Word. Prayer and study are certainly things we can do. Do you think the do you think the Pharisees were short on that? Remember, they would stand out in public and have these long, long prayers, wouldn't they? Yeah. Did they reason? Pardon? Did they reason? Did they reason? That's a good question. They were praying, but were they communicating with God? Oh, that's a good question, isn't it? Yeah, they were. A couple of things. One, they were praying, but were they conversing? Were they communicating? Were they having conversation with God with a friend? Number two, what God were they praying to? God of their own making. Yes. Can we pray to someone that we give the label Yahweh or Jehovah or Jesus, but we have constructed an idea in our mind of what that God is like such that it doesn't even reflect what God is really like? Can we do that? Sure. Yeah. Would that have an impact on on how we develop if if we see God in distorted ways? Yes. Yes, Ken. Catholics refer to that as the uh, Protestant idolatry. The Protestant idolatry. That's right. Yeah, that we have got the uh, idea wrong. Yeah, we have misconstrued God. Interestingly enough, I think many of you know that, that some of us believe that the, the last step to complete the Reformation, you know, the Reformation started, the man of sin arose. Paul said that the, the second coming wouldn't come until the man of sin arises and, and, and obscures in the darkness, and he sets himself up in the, in, the, in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. All these things were going to happen before the second coming. But before the second coming, after all that happens, there would be a reformation. There would be a, a regeneration of truth. The gospel would still go to the, the kingdom. And the reformation started with Martin Luther, basically. And, and we look back over history and see a progression of truths recovered that helps us see God more clearly over time, right? 
But there's one truth that many of us believe is yet to be recovered by an organized body, a, 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 a people that's, that proclaim this, this truth and reject a certain construct. And what is that? The character of God. The, the central issue that seems to be, the central issue, exactly the character of God, reflected in the idea that God required his son to appease his wrath, a blood payment, to, to pen, a penal substitution, a, an idea that, that God is wrathful and angry and his son is gracious and loving and his son pleads to the father to protect us from his anger, that uh, God is something other than the kind, gracious, loving being revealed in his son. This idea that God had to execute his own son in order to be just is paganism infected the mother church and all the little daughter churches. And it doesn't really matter what Protestant church you look at. All of them, on some level, still have this idea in their mind, in their teachings, that God is in heaven and requires a, a legal payment of the blood be offered to him in order for him to be able to legally pardon and be gracious. And some go far as to say that God himself killed his son on the cross in order to be just. And that was in uh, North American Division, uh, Adventist Review, December 2007, article where it said that God killed his son on the cross. You won't find that in the scripture, by the way. You also won't find that in the writings of Ellen White. She says explicitly that at the cross, Satan revealed himself as a murderer in taking the life of the Son of God. The article is the Engel Rodriguez article. Did you ask yes. a question to the author? The, uh, <clears throat> oh, no. Editor? No, no, no. We're still flying under the radar here in this class. <laughs> <laughs> we're not flying under the radar anymore. My wife's going, no, we're not. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, th- this perspective, many of us believe, is, a, is that peace. That pe- as long as we believe this about God, I mean, think about it. If you actually believe that Father in Heaven is up there keeping records in order to punish you and inflict suffering upon you, that He will externally weigh down upon you, can you trust a God like that? No. No, it undermines trust. You cannot trust a God who would do that to you. Yes? Yeah, you just gave me this flash of insight. I'm a 16th century scholar and why the Mass. You know, um, I've read this in Richard Hooker. You don't really, you don't really have to have a full mental understanding. I'm talking about 16th century to for that mass to actually do its work and save you. All you have to do is eat it. Yeah. You know, and and it would be nice if you had this mental ascent. You really understood what you were doing, but if you don't, it still works. You know, this this idea of magic. Right. And and that's what you're talking about here, where you know Jesus is doing this magic. That's right. And it's, you're right, it's pagan. It is absolutely pagan. And we have this distortion, and it is vis- viscerally defended by some. In, our, in every organization that I talk to, they get very, very upset. Well, that's why people, when uh, you're on a board or something, and you have someone who's done something wrong, they want them to suffer. That's right. That's right. But, but, but we need to ask some questions about justice. Maybe we should have a little, it's not in our notes, maybe we should have a little discussion about what justice is. The justice of God is based, any, in fact, any justice in any government, isn't that justice based upon the law that that government is founded upon? True? Yeah. So the law that, that the government of God is founded upon is the law of? Love. So God's justice is based on? Love. love. So when you think about it that way, then what does the justice that is predicated on love require God to do when his children end up in a sinful state? To heal them. There you go. To reach out and heal, to restore, to regenerate, to recreate, to, to redeem. That's what the law of love, the justice of the law of love requires. And as we talked about earlier, the love is that principle upon which all life is created to operate. Disharmony with this law, I did a, I did a talk a couple weeks ago called uh, Life's Secret Code. And I explore those five, five laws that govern life. And we go through them and, and you'll see them. I won't have time to do that whole talk right now, just really give the recap. The laws of health, respiration, nutrition, hydration. If you violate those laws, if you tie a plastic bag over your head, really tight. God will not send an angel down from heaven to punish you for that. He won't. But you still will die. Okay? If you decide to stop eating, if you decide to stop drinking, God will not send an angel to punish you. He will not inflict, inflict suffering upon you for that. But you will die. The laws of nature, like the laws of gravity, the laws of thermodynamics, the laws of motion. If you decide to jump off a building, God will not send an angel down to inflict suffering and death upon you for doing that. But you will suffer. 
there were consequences to bear. God's laws are, are the laws upon which life is designed to operate. The law of liberty we've talked about many times. If you violate freedoms, if you tell somebody, put a knife to their throat and tell them, you better love me or I'll kill you. <laughs> okay? Love is damaged and destroyed. A desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. And if freedom isn't restored, individuality is destroyed. If you do this in your marriage, if you tell your spouse, you better love me or I'm going to stomp, I'm going to scream, I'm going to, I'm going to curse, I'm going to, I'm going to pressure you, I'm going to control you. If you try that in your, in your marriage, God doesn't have to send an angel to destroy your marriage or to destroy love or to instill rebellion or conflict. It's an automatic consequence because love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. The laws of worship. It, by beholding, we become changed. We actually become like whatever it is we admire, we, we, we esteem, we value. We, we, we internalize that into our character. If you decide to worship a little frog, a little rat, if you decide to, to worship money or some other thing, God does not have to send an angel from heaven to sear your conscience, to warp your reason, to, to, to darken your mind. This, Paul says in Romans chapter 1, starting verse 18, verse, uh, going through 31, six times that the knowledge of God was rejected, they preferred images of mortal man, birds, and animals to, to that of God. And the mind becomes dark and the mind becomes futile. We become foolish. God doesn't have to inflict this upon him. It's a normal consequence when we don't internalize the truth, when we reject the truth and hold to a lie. And then the last is the law of love, which is the law of, of life, the, the law of giving. Love seeks not its own, or love is not self-seeking. It is other-centered, outward-moving. This is a principle of life. If you violate that principle, God doesn't have to inflict death. Death automatically comes. Remember that principle of circulation we talked about. Everything, the never-ending flow of giving that we see in all of nature. As you breathe out oxygen, you give. A, I mean, breathe out carbon dioxide, you give to the plants, and they give back oxygen to you. If you don't want to be a giver, you don't have to. You can hold your breath. You don't have to give out carbon dioxide anymore. But you die. You see, it's, it's a law of life. And the law of the universe is love. It's this principle of love, a never-ending giving. And we understand that, then we understand that that law, the justice there, requires that God reach out and heal and restore. Now, I'll give you a, a parable, a metaphor. Imagine your child, your child has leukemia. Your child's 15, has leukemia, will die. Unless they're, 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 something is done to put the, the cancer into remission. And remission of cancer is, what, what, is it, what does it mean when cancer remits? It goes back to the original. It turns back. Okay. Now, what do the laws of health require? In order for you to save your child, in order for your child to live, in order for, for the laws of health, to, to, for justice to be served, for there to be no violation of the law, what, ha- what was required is simply that the cells that are out of harmony with the law, you see cancer are cells that are re- reproducing out of control. They've lost self-control. They're no longer operating within the parameters of their programming. And it's me, 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 more of me, just more and more and more and more to the point that death ensues. In order for the laws of your child to live, the laws of health must be observed, which means that the cancer has to remit back to its original design. They have to come back into self-governance, self-control, operate within the programming of its original design. Now, if your child had this leukemia because at age five they drank some poison that you told them, never, never, never touch the poisons, but your child messed with the poisons and, and it was that toxic exposure that caused the leukemia, would you, would you say then that justice would require you as the parent to stand by and let your child die because, because you had told them in the day you mess with those poisons, you will die? Would justice require you to let them die? If that justice is based on love. Would justice require you kill the child? No. No. You see? You don't have to do anything. Pardon? You kill his brother. You kill the brother. Or the justice required you kill the brother for the one who's the, the one who's healthy. And we have all these weird constructs. You're sick. You go to the doctor with the child with leukemia. The doctor comes in to examine the sick child. And quickly you throw the healthy brother in front of him and says, please examine the healthy brother. Don't look at the sick one. How many times we teach God in heaven? Don't look at me. Look at my healthy brother, Jesus. Why? Because we don't trust the doctor. See, if the doctor sees our wickedness, well, he'll have to punish us, won't he? And so we have these ideas that, that, not, that we have the God in heaven, our heavenly physician, is required to actually kill his patients. Is this something twisted in our minds? How can we trust our doctor if we believe he's out to kill us? Unless you read in the scripture, you put the pieces together. In 1 Corinthians 13, uh, and we already know that God is love, right? And then it says love is not self-seeking, but it also says love is keeps no record of wrongs. Wait a minute, if God is love, and love keeps no record of wrongs, then why do we teach that God's got this record book He's going to punish us by? 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says God was not keeping account of men's sins or holding men's sins against them. Why do we teach it does? That's a good question. <laughs> because we've accepted lies about God. We've accepted lies about God into our thinking. The truth is, we were sick. And the records are there in the same way that the medical records are there to document our sickness, to document the remedy when applied, and to document the transformation that comes forth. Thus, at the end, when somebody says, well, you saved these, but those you didn't save. Well, why didn't he save those? Will it be some deficiency on God's part? They didn't take the remedy. Yes, and the records come forward to show that God did everything to save these people, but those that were lost were lost because they refused the remedy. The records aren't there to, to, to punish us by. The records are there to exonerate God by. That's what they're there for. Is that, is that his justice? His justice. The justice of God. If you love somebody and your wife, let's say, decides to leave you. Now, you love her. Love requires that you reach out to redeem. So you, you express your love. You plead your case. You, you demonstrate your love in actions and words. You may even have an envoys come to communicate your love to your wife. But if she insists on leaving after every intervention possible, what's the only loving course of action left to you? What would, and if justice is based on love, what's the only just course of action open to you? Let her go. And when the life giver lets go, what happens? We die. We die. And this is God's strange act. How strange would it be for a parent to let go of a drowning child and let that child drown? How strange would that be? If the parent was a loving parent. Wouldn't that be a strange act? You see, we twist God's strange act as God inflicts death. He doesn't inflict death. But how about if your child is drowning and you're holding on, but the child is holding on to 500 pounds of gold they won't let go of? And they won't let go of that 500 pounds of gold. No matter what you do, let go, let go. They won't let go. They insist on holding to it. Yes, at some point. But you cry when you do it. Pardon? At what point do you decide to let go? Yeah, the point that God decides to let go is the point. Um, when I was a uh, medical student in the fourth year here at Erlanger, we had a helicopter crash, and all the victims were brought to the, to the ER. Well, one of the victims, a, a lady, had broken femurs and broken pelvis, and she was bleeding a lot from those into the, into the uh, compartments of her body. And she was going to die unless they did surgery quickly, and also she needed blood transfusions. However, she was Jehovah's Witness, and she refused blood transfusions. She was pled to by the medical students, by the nurses, by the doctors, by the hospital administration. There must have been 20 people that came and pled with this woman. Pled with her, pled with her, pled, please, you're going to die. No matter what was said, she refused. At some point along that way, she lost consciousness. She was still alive, but she was no longer conscious. And when that happened, we stopped pleading with her. Why did we stop pleading with her? That's when God stops. When we are so damaged in our minds, hearts, and characters that we are beyond hearing any, anything that God has to say to us, that no truth has any impact, we can't hear the spirits moving, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, is, our consciences are seared, our faculties are so damaged that we are beyond responding to the movements of God. That's when he quits and lets go. But not until then. Does that make sense? I guess I was thinking more in terms of when you're trying to save someone who's drowning because <clears throat> don't talk under the water, that's why I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Tim, yes. How does that um, view of like you know the record books and they're there just so other people can see that God was just and why some were saved and what some weren't? Um, how does that reconcile with the whole 1844 beginning of the investigative judgment and how long is that going to take? And Wow, that's a whole different question, isn't it? <laughs> wow, do we really want to talk about the heavenly sanctuary question? Well, all right, just thought I'd throw that out there. <laughs> By email if you care to. You know the answer, but it just takes a long time. <laughs> it is. It's a 30-minute answer. So, uh, all right, skip it. <laughs> yes. You need to go to the website and listen to your Sabbath program. You did all that. Yes, yes. Just a question about the word uh, remission. Um... As you use it, as we use it currently, it's probably not the same way it's used in the text that people want to quote. Um, and, you know, sometimes the word is for the mercy seat, other times it's for forgiveness. So, uh, how does, I mean, uh, 
Actually, I think it is exactly the way we're using it as the way it was intended. I think the idea that without the shedding of blood there was no forgiveness is an abuse of the term and is not intended to be that way. I think that's a misrepresentation. And the reason for that is we can look very clearly. Was God forgiving of sinners without Christ's death, or did God need Christ to die in order for God, in His heart, to be a forgiving being? No. No. So without the death of Christ, God couldn't forgive us? Or without the death of Christ, we couldn't be healed, we couldn't be reconciled, we couldn't be regenerated, we couldn't be restored. That's it. That's what it is. So God could forgive, but we'd still die. You see, God did forgive. God forgave those who put Him on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But they weren't reconciled. They weren't His friends. So uh, the whole human race, I think, was forgiven immediately. Think about your child if your child does something wrong. Your child has told you a fib. Your child has stolen a, a cookie or something. Does something? Does your wife or an older brother need to work on you now in order to get you to be a forgiving dad? Or are you already forgiving your child, and in your forgiving and loving heart, you are now seeking to redeem, to restore, to direct that child in healthier ways? And so you discipline and love, not vengeance, not to make them pay, not to, to, to exact wrath upon them, because you've already forgiven them. But until that child repents, until that child has a change of heart, reconciliation hasn't occurred. And so I see the shedding of Christ's blood as very clearly not to get God, not to change God, not to impact God in some way. But it was actually to fix, heal, and restore the brokenness that sin had caused. Amen. I'm just wondering if an analogy of that could be like, you know, we receive treatment for things and we can be, you know, healed, but if we don't take the lifestyle that, like, for instance, people will have heart bypass surgeries or whatever, and they can be fixed right then, but if they don't take the lifestyle to maintain that health and stuff, then they're just going to go back to right where they were. Like, I don't know if that could be. That's a great point. And I, I, and I use that, I think, in my book when I talk about, you know, why is it, what is this unpardonable sin thing? This, this idea that, that you've persisted in sinful living so long that you've permanently damaged the faculties that recognize and respond to truth. That you, you don't react anymore to the Holy Spirit. That, that you can't see light anymore. That you're, you're blind mentally to anything God would offer you. Well, God has the power to reverse the clock. He could take you back in time. He could recreate those faculties. But if there is no transformation of character, then you simply persist in the same destructive lifestyle and just destroy those faculties all over again. Yeah, so that's a great point. I was just going to say that, speaking of discipline to children, that's how I look at church discipline as well. If church discipline is done, it has to be done in love, and we should not shun that person but try to win them back to the Lord, but yet not leave them in their sin because that's not love either. That's exactly right what it's supposed to be. Uh, and, and Ellen White actually talks about um, if you see your brother committing some sin, if you love him enough that you'd give your life for him, then you're the person to go talk to him about his sin. But if you don't love him that much, then you need to keep quiet. <laughs> you see the wisdom in that? Yeah. It's very interesting in Matthew 18 where Jesus has all those different parables like the lost sheep and everything, and then it talks about forgiveness, and then at the end it says... Um, you know, if your brother sins against you seven times, you tell it to the church and so mm-hmm. forth. And then it says, if he won't hear you, then let then treat him as a publican and sinner. Well, how does how do we treat a publican and sinner? That's the lost sheep. That's right. We love them. Yes, exactly. It's not that we shun them. That's right. We, we exercise all of our resources to try to win them. That's right. And isn't it ha- interesting how we've often view it the other way? <laughs> yeah, with shunning. Exactly. Good point. Excellent points. Okay. Um, in that paragraph that we read, it says that we, partake, uh, we need to partake of Jesus and what he offers us. What is it that Jesus offers us? His, his character. His life, his character. Oh, beautifully stated, you guys. That is so right on. Uh, this is out of Desire of Ages 762. It says the law requires righteousness, a righteous life of perfect character, and this man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. What's the claim of the law? A perfect life, a righteous character. But Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who receive them. This is a gift from God. Christ fixed the problem that man had, our defect of character, that we operated on the, the laws of self-preservation. Christ came and restored in his own life experience the law of love, developing that perfect Christ-like godly character. And he offers that freely to all of us who trust him. And the Holy Spirit then comes and, and reproduces, takes what's, what's Christ and makes it known to us, reproducing Christ-like character within us. That's what we need, that regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to take the character of Christ and make it known to us. Well, let's look at some more on this line. John, in our lesson for Sunday, it asks us to read John chapter 6, verse 43 to, to 58. So somebody read that for us. 
stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, he who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. And some church, one large church, teaches that this means that you have to take the Mass, and when you take the Mass, it transforms itself into actual blood and actual flesh. Is that what this means? No. Some form of some form of cannibalism? What is he talking about here? In the beginning of John, it says the Word became flesh. And the Word is the Word that he speaks and teaches. Okay. Did you hear what she said, everyone? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And unless you eat my flesh and drink, unless you take my Word... Okay. What a, that's a great thought. Excellent thought. Other thoughts? Well, in the Old Testament system, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, um, what does it say about the blood? The light. Now, I'll read you a little of this. Leviticus 17, 11 through 14. It says, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to Israel, None of you may eat the blood, nor may any li- alien living among you eat blood. Any Israelite or alien living among you who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with the earth because the life of every creature is in the blood. That is why I have said to you that you must not eat the blood of any creature. And then in Deuteronomy 12.23 it says, Be sure you do not eat the blood because the blood is the life and you must not eat the life with the meat. Think about the meaning. In contrast that, remember, this is the mindset. And he's saying, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Do you think they might have had a little problem with this? Yes. The life is in the blood. We're not to eat the life with the meat. Hmm. Thoughts about that? Perfect opportunity for them to come and reason with God and ask, what do you mean? (laughs) Yeah. You know, and with the disciples all through, do you find the disciples taking many opportunities to say, hey, can can you tell us what you meant by that? Hey, in the Old Testament, why did you say this and you're doing this now? Do you you find them really asking these hard questions of Jesus? Boy, don't you wish they would have? Yeah. So the, the blood represents, in the text in the Bible, life. In this case, Christ is saying to drink whose blood? His. So whose life? His life. His life. Does this mean we are to internalize and take into our own hearts and minds and characters the life of Christ? Is that what it means? To be like Jesus in heart, in mind. Yeah. In Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 378, it says, In the study of the Bible, the converted soul eats the flesh and drinks the blood of the Son of God, which he interprets as receiving and doing his words that are spirit and life. And then Christ Object Lessons, page 102. It says, The leaven of truth works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, and the selfish generous. By it, the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Thoughts about that? Yes. You can think of it as nutrition. You eat something that becomes part of it, it's good or bad. Right? Yes. And it can be. It helps you grow and build and have daily. 
Yes, yes, yes. So, as we think about this truth, this life of Christ being taken into where? Our hearts. Our hearts and minds. Okay. In the Old Testament system, who did the Lamb represent? Christ. Jesus. And the blood of the Lamb would have represented? The life of the Lamb, and in this case, the life of Jesus. And in the Old Testament system, where was the blood ministered? Through the whole system, right? It was all over the place. It was in the brazen altar, it was in the golden altar, spring before the veils taken in the most holy place, right? And then Jesus says, in the New Testament, we're to take his blood and place it where? Inside us. Wait a minute. Are we saying that the Old Testament system is a metaphor for God's plan to restore his character in us? Because everything the blood touched became... Because everything the, the, the blood touched became... Holy. You will never find in the Bible that the blood, ever, the blood of the sacrificial animal ever contaminated anything. Not one place. Everything it touches becomes holy, purified. Unlike some teachings that teach all through the year the blood contaminated the sanctuary, and at the end of the year the sanctuary is very, very contaminated, and it needs cleansing by, by the atonement animal. That is not what is taught in the Scripture. The scripture teaches that everything the blood touches made, is made holy. So, is there other evidence that this Old Testament system is designed to teach regenerating and restoring of God's character into the species? Any other text? What's the new covenant in Hebrews 8? I'll write my laws. I'll write my laws where? I will put my laws. And so that's the new covenant. In the old covenant, where was the law? In the, ark. in the ark. Wait, in the new covenant, it's in our heart and mind. In the old covenant, it's in the heart. In the new covenant, we're to take the blood and flesh into us. In the old covenant, it was taken into the system. Are, 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 we, are we allowing Christ to be the lens through which we understand the Old Testament? Or do we try to pigeonhole Christ into our understanding of the Old Testament? Which, which do you think is the clearer understanding? The Old Testament symbols, separate from Christ, or Christ's revelation of what it all means. Yeah, but we have it backwards, don't we? Don't we take and try to pigeonhole Christ into our view of what the Old Testament teaches? Aren't we a temple? Pardon? Oh, there are more New Testament texts. Don't you know that ye yourself are a temple of the Spirit of God and, and God lives in you? Absolutely. How about Peter's text? That ye are, are living stones. A holy priesthood. That the, that the temple, it says in Zechariah, that the branch will branch out. And that branch is a capital B. You know who that's talking about? Christ. He will branch out and he will build his temple, is what it says. And the New Testament says that Christ is the chief cornerstone. And the apostles are the foundation. And we are living stones of the temple of God. Wow. What is this telling us? How about in Revelation when it says that you will be a pillar, you will be a pillar in the temple of God and never will you leave it. Oh, you mean I'm going to be locked in a building in heaven for all eternity? On a cloud and a heart. I can't travel the universe? I can't go places? I've got to be locked in a, in a temple for all eternity? I can't leave? Well, if we think it's a literal building, that's a problem. If we understand that in actuality, that the living temple of God is constructed of His holy intelligences, that He dwells in us. He is building His temple out of those who have come to be restored into unity with us. Is there scriptural evidence for what I'm saying? Or am I just pulling this out of thin air? Yes. Does it make more sense to see that this is a regenerating, restoring, cleansing, rebuilding process going on in the hearts and minds of those who have lost touch with God versus there is some literal piece of parchment in heaven in a building constructed out of inanimate um, materials in heaven that this thing is going on in? Which is more sensible? I saw a hand, yes. Exactly, exactly. You should read in uh, Desire of Ages and in Education, uh, 
in education, I think is page 70, 72, I think is the page page that you need to go to. Um, and I think uh, Desire of Ages is page 161. And so if you look at those two page, those two areas, you will find that Ellen White explicitly says that the temple in Jerusalem was an object lesson to reveal God's plan for every intelligent being, from the high and holy seraph to man, we are to be a temple for the living God. And that was what it was designed to teach, that God's dwelling in us, and the, re, and the reuniting of all the universe back under one head, even Jesus Christ, taught in the atonement experience at one, bringing everything back into unity and oneness that is currently fractured and broken. Maybe we have a wrong idea of what a temple is, but in the wilderness God said, build me a sanctuary temple that I may dwell with him. Exactly. So it's a dwelling place for God. Exactly, exactly. All right, uh, Monday's lesson. Uh, somebody uh, read Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. And he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Thoughts about this passage? Did ever you ever struggled with this idea? Especially when we contrast it with 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when Paul says, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Hmm. Talking about childish innocence. So how do we how do we blend the two? Childlikeness, Childlikeness, not childishness. Childlikeness? So the innocence, you mean naivety? Trusting. To be wise as serpents. Curiousness, he says. A child is curious. But they don't question and seek for understanding. I mean, they do to a certain extent, but they don't really challenge. I mean, I don't know. It's just... I don't know. They're children capable of, 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 of reflective reasoning. Not no, so that's not what it means. Yes? Uh, I'm not sure how many people know this, but the children have a natural, uh, almost a sixth sense about them, about the characters of people and stuff like that, and it's usually determined things that maybe people that overthink things can't. And they will usually, basically, even maybe on that, uh, just make, you know, believe them without having to ask why, why. I know. I know a lot of kids that ask why, why, why. <laughs> okay. He says he says that they're able to believe uh, the the parent, which which is what you were saying. Trust the parent without actually understanding all the parameters and explanations of why or how things work. Okay. What would that belief? What would that belief or trust be predicated upon? Trustworthiness of the parent. Say that louder. Trustworthiness of the, the trustworthiness of the parent. So they may not understand, for instance, you tell them that uh, they need to take this medicine. Well, how does it work? Why do we need to take it? You may not even, as uh, a layperson, understand the intricacies of the medicine yourself. But you may be able to say, because it's going to make you well. It's going to help you get well. Now, the child may never understand how the medicine works, but the child trusts you if you've been a trustworthy parent. What happens if you've been abusing that kid? What happens if you've lied to that kid repeatedly? You've told him you'd be places, you're not there. You've, you've, you never, you've really never kept your word consistently with them. Will your child trust you then? No. So the trust that the child has is still based on evidence, but not the evidence of the particular point of discussion. It's the evidence of your trustworthiness. And so is Christ saying that we're to have this faith or trust of a child because we know our Heavenly Father? Yes. Linda. Well, I'm thinking when I read this text, I've always thought of it in terms of the natural dependence of a child on the parents for sustenance as their, their, they trust and rely on the parent that the parent is looking after them. The parent will, will give them what they need and the, the turning of the child to accept what that parent has to offer that will keep them alive and keep them growing and so on. They don't say, well, where's my next meal? They trust the parents providing the next parents going to do this and that. It's a dependent type of, I mean, a, a look toward the parents 
as, as a provider and dependent upon them. I like what you're saying there, that the children have a sense of peace and security. They're free from a lot of worry and anxiety because they don't think about where the electric bill is going to get paid this month or not. They don't think about where the garbage is going to get collected this month, where the mortgage is going to be paid this month, uh, whether we're going to have enough money to buy groceries this month. I mean, they're not worried about all those things that are uh, as children. The parents take care of that, and they, and they grow up with a sense of security or confidence. All that's going to be provided. And Christ, of course, said, you know, look at the sparrows. And look at the grass. Okay, how it's, how it's, you don't need to worry about these things. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all its righteous. All these other things we provide unto you. So that kind of trust that we don't have to worry about the day-to-day uh, necessities that God is looking out for us to provide those, I think is, is a reasonable point. Yes? That's what conversion is when you accept another reality. And the best Bible example of that would be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where they have this reality of what God, who God is, and what He can do if He chooses to do. And I like when you say that, what God can do if He chooses to do. Because remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we know our God can, but even if He doesn't, we still won't bow. So they weren't saying God will protect us. They know He could. How many times do we have that, that experience where we expect He will, and then when He doesn't, we collapse? Well, you know, I've always done everything I was supposed to, but look, uh, you know, I, I lost my job. Uh, God, God said He would protect. No, God said, you know, He could do this. But maybe it's uh, some reason that he won't in this argument. Look at the case of Joseph. Joseph, I mean, he got sold by his brothers into slavery. I mean, it's 13 years before that thing got worked out. I mean, he had 13 years to wonder, wait a minute, I was, I was the good kid. I was always doing what dad wanted. I was the faithful one. I was the one who was loyal to you, God. All the other brothers were doing all this horrible stuff. How come I'm the one that got in slavery here? That's because you accept that other reality, that heavenly reality. That's right. Something bigger and larger is going on beyond our awareness. I think Abraham is another good example of a child's faith because obviously murder is wrong and he knew it was wrong, but he knew the God he served to such an extent that he knew God would work it out for the best, despite the fact he didn't understand what he asked him to do. Yeah, I don't like that one so much. Well, that, that, I think that the issue with Abraham, Abraham had been begging God to see more of God's character, to see more of God. And the, 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 the instruction to Abraham was an answer to Abraham's prayer, let me see more of you, God. Let me come to know you more intimately. And so Abraham was instructed to do this so Abraham could experience God's heart and what God would be going through when he sent his son. But he trusted him. Uh, he worked it out in his mind that this was a child should have never been born in the first place and that this was a miracle child to come to someone of the age of him and his wife, and that if God brought him this promised child in this miraculous way in the first place, then God could raise the child from the dead. So he had actually worked it out in his mind. It wasn't this blind, not understanding anything and just doing things because God said so. But he truly trusted him. Yes, he did trust him, but there's lots of evidence for that trust. Yes. Oh, yes. I have a different take on this when the disciples came and asked him, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Could they not have been thinking about themselves? And he shot this whole thing down with the humility and trust of the child. You know, I love that. I think you're exactly right. Who's the greatest? To be the greatest in the kingdom. And the mama came and asked, have my two boys can have the left and the right? Yes. So I think you're exactly right. I think you shot the whole thing down and go, whoa, what is going on here? Yes. Um, remember the context of Paul. And the, the quote I meant about childish things. He was in the context of the love chapter. And he's talking about what love is all about. And we've already talked about that. Love is giving. It's like godless, uh, godlike, godlike, perfect, selfless love. Uh, is that natural to a child? Does a child come into the world automatically loving in that way? No. We're born with those we talked about already in here. That, that sinful propensity to act in self-interest. Children are self-focused. And so, how, are the, how is a child able to overcome their own fears? Child, children have fears, don't they? How is a child able to overcome their fears? Is it not somehow related to that trust relationship with their parent? As they trust their parent, uh, really have that confidence and trust, can they overcome their fears and, and head in directions that they wouldn't do otherwise because the parent has assured them it's okay? Do you think Christ is... Yeah, do you think Christ is telling us that as we go forward at these times coming in the future that we may not understand everything is about to come. We may have lots of fears. But remember the Psalms? You know, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they cover me. We will have fears. It doesn't say, I will have no fears. You know, I'm not gonna have, the evils are going to come. We're going to have fears, but we're going to be able to move forward and trust 
and that trust will to a great degree diminish our fear. We'll be tempted to fear, but then we reach out and we look and say, wait a minute, but I know, I know God. I know He's in charge. I know He's working things out. I, I can't see exactly what's going to happen next week, but you know what? It's going to work out. And we move forward in that trust. Our fears get diminished. Isaiah 41 again. Isaiah 41. I am with thee, not this may. I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. I will help thee. My right hand of my righteousness. Yes, I take you by my right hand and I will help you. And I will, yeah, exactly right. Fear not. Yes, Ken. Well, earlier I was thinking that uh, in, on the theme of dependence, we, we often realize that we can depend on God, but sometimes we're so focused or so fixated on a certain way that God's going to help that we forget what Ellen White said, that God has a thousand ways to provide for us of which we know nothing. That's right. And you, you correlate that with the fact that Edison did thousands of experiments before he came up with, with electricity. We're going to close with Tuesday's lesson. It's about the, the transfiguration experience. And it talks in the transfiguration experience about uh, uh, Jesus never calls us to discipleship to, to, be, uh, to being a follower without giving us reasons to believe. And it goes on to the transfiguration experience and about the reasons there, uh, about that tremendous uh, experience that they experience. But my question to you is, is a transfiguration experience, is that, that miraculous uh, thing that they observed, is that a good reason to believe? No. No, it's not a very good reason. It's not, it's not that there's not any reason. It's not like no reason, but it's not, a, it's not the best reasons. Why is it not the best reasons? Because it be, can Lucifer come in a dazzling, brilliant light display? Doesn't Paul talk about an angel of light deceiving? Didn't Lucifer come to Christ as an angel of light in the wilderness and perform miracles, take him to the top of the building and show him all the lands of the earth and all these other things? There are miracles going on. Didn't Lucifer have a serpent speak in the garden? I mean, miracles are not very good evidence to base one's faith upon because they can be faked. They can be faked. And unfortunately, there's a society today that is looking for the miraculous, looking for the great light show in the sky to base their evidence upon, base their faith upon. If you had an angel come to you at your prayers tonight at the foot of your bed and appear to you like a Daniel of old, and the angel instructed you need to sell your house and go to some mission land. Would you blindly do it? How would you know the angel was from God? How would you know the angel was from God? I mean, do you have some, uh, you know, did you ask, you know, like when the FBI comes, you've got some verification, you can check their ID, you can call the, I mean, is there some, some, some verification you can get that this angel is one of God's angels that comes? Sure I mean, are we told? The gold card. The gold card, yes. Uh, <laughs> are we not told that in the last days that the, the angels are going to appear and do all types of miracles and signs and wonders as if it were possible to see the very elect? to the scriptures. Yes, and so where do you find the scripture saying you shouldn't go to Malaysia as a missionary? You go into all the world and preach the gospel. I mean, you know, it might be. It might be. How about if it says you should marry a certain person? He came to, he came to Hosea. Told him to marry Gomer. Hey, if an angel came and told you to do it. Do, do you just blindly do it? Uh, do you know? I mean, is it is it fair? Is it reasonable to ask the question, hey, is this angel from God? I need to know that answer to that question before I can follow the angel. I have to know. I have to have some verification. This angel's from God. Yes. When I lost my son, he appeared at my bedside, just as straight as you're sitting. And all I could remember is that scripture: "The dead know not anything." And so I wouldn't even address him. And the orderly said, "Why didn't you talk with him?" I said, "Because the Bible says the dead are dead and know not anything." I believe that if we're having a relationship with Christ, that God, God, I've said many times, God tells me. And I believe He does tell me. And if I can't tell the difference between the devil and Christ, I've got something wrong inside of me and with my relation, my devotion. I, that, that's a great point. If our consciences are in tune, God will, will send His angels and His Spirit to enlighten our minds. There's no question about it. Um, but there are people who are going to be believing those angels thinking they're following Christ, aren't they? Yes. yes. And they're going to think that their hearts are in tune. And they're going to think the Holy Spirit's enlightening their mind. Because it may not be that. Like, what do, yeah, answer the question. <laughs> what do you do? 
<laughs> well, yes, my point simply is that miraculous signs and wonders are not the basis for our faith. Not the basis for our faith. Um, pardon? Because if that does sound like a godly thing to do. It, it, it says... Um, in January, uh, January, this is Signs of the Times, January 20, 1890. It says, The Savior of the world proposed that no attraction of the earthly character should call men to his side. The light of, and beauty of celestial truth alone should be the drawing power. The outward glory, the worldly honor which attracts the attention of men, he would not assume. He made himself accessible to all, teaching the pure, exalted principles of truth as that which only was worthy of their notice. And so we have to follow the truth. The truth sets free. The truth heals. The truth about God's character of love is revealed in Christ, not wonderful, uh, powerful shows of light and display and glory and, and those types of things. It's actually the truth itself is revealed in Christ. That's what God wants us to be drawn back to him for. The, Satan wants to, to divert our mind from the truth. And one of his diversions is miraculous signs and wonders that people pursue rather than the evidence and truth which heals and sets free. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of truth, a God of love, a God of patience, a God who who has spent the last 6,000 or more years working to heal and redeem and restore us back into unity with you. So many lies have been told about you. Our minds have been so confused, but you've been patient. We pray now that your spirit will enlighten our minds, help the, the pieces come together, the pieces of the word that we studied, that we can see more clearly who you really are, your methods, your principles, this plan of salvation, the context of this great controversy with evil, that we can fulfill our role in your plan to be restored to unity with you, and then to win others to, to unity with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.